and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Here again with another hour of geeky news, views, chat and stuff. And yes, there is more chat this week. Uh, we have the second part of my conversation with the very brilliant Shannon Kirkwood from Moonsquid Press about her equally brilliant Tempest Red graphic novel series, uh, which is now available from Destination Venus. Also online, links to uh, Shannon's website in the show notes. All of that coming up. But first, we have some important news from... There is a lot of space news this week that we're not going to cover because a good half of this show is going to be taken up by the conversation with Shannon. And uh, I don't want to want to skip on stuff. But there is news about the James Webb Space Telescope. I said I would keep you informed and I'm a man of my word. So there is good news about the James Webb Space Telescope and there is facepalming news about the James Webb Space Telescope. And so... Let's start with the facepalm. As I reported a couple of weeks ago in this segment, the long-awaited James Webb Space Telescope, that's really hard to say, uh, was shipped to its launch site a couple of weeks ago. It should have flown in 2007. It's been ready to fly for five, count them, five years. Would still have been late, but still. It was conceived in 1996 as not the successor to Hubble but the companion to Hubble and it's finally after so many ridiculous delays a lot of them caused by nonsense politicking it's finally ready to go its launch date was set for the 17th of December this year a mere couple of weeks away from where I'm recording this now and then, as they were working to mount the instrument into the rocket that will carry it to space, they let go too early. One of the restraining clamps was, in NASA's terms, prematurely released. And as a result, they didn't drop it or anything, but a massive vibration went through the entire satellite. Now, that could have been a massive, massive, massive problem. And NASA immediately scrubbed the 17th of December launch date, saying that they would need time to conduct some tests and it would launch now no earlier than December the 22nd. Well, there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Actually, there wasn't. We've given up wailing and gnashing our teeth about the James Webb Space Telescope. There was much rolling of eyes and muttering of, oh, for goodness sake, across the astronomical community worldwide. But... Pleased to report, NASA has checked, and the vibrations that went through the instrument have not caused any damage that they can detect. They can see nothing at all, not a single problem. So, the December 22nd launch date is on. So, 14 years late and a quarter of a century after somebody first had the bright idea, the JWST will take to the skies just before Christmas this year. Now, I had been thinking that when the James Webb Space Telescope finally got its clearance for launch, I would do a big thing about it, you know, talk about all the th the amazing things it's supposed to be able to do. And 
you know, go a really deep, detailed dive. I'm still planning to do that, but it occurs to me, I'm going to wait a bit. And this is why. After 25 years and billions of dollars, literal billions of dollars, there's a fair to middling chance that the James Webb Space Telescope won't work. You see, it's a very complicated bit of kit. It has to be because of what it's doing. Uh, it's not an optical telescope. It's uh, infrared and radio. And all of its extremely delicate instruments have been sitting idly around for five years. OK, now that's not good for electronic equipment. It just isn't. It's going to take four months to get to where it's going. OK, its, it's point in orbit is, is precisely marked and it's going to take four months to get there. When it does, it has to unfurl its sun shield. That's a very complicated bit of origami. And there's a, a reasonable chance that something will go wrong in the deployment of that sun shield. And without the sun shield, it won't work. So I'm going to hold fire because after all of this time and all of this wait, the possibilities for crushing disappointment are actually quite high. So I'm not going to speculate about what it might be able to do until I actually know it can do anything at all. Because we need to be clear, um, if it doesn't work, we cannot fix it. It's going to be too far out. We have no means of getting people to where that is going. And we don't have a vehicle that could go and pick it up and fetch it back. We couldn't have done it if we had the shuttle, and we don't even have that. So unlike Hubble, which got a couple of servicing flights from the space shuttle to uh, fix stuff and keep it going, James Webb is absolutely on its own. So keep watching this space and we will see what happens. And now, although there is a lot of other space news, we'll leave space there because we've got a lot of other stuff to cover this week. So let's move back to the conversation I was having with Shannon. We stopped last week at a fairly logical stopping point. I'd been pontificating, as is my habit, for a while, and we were about to move on to a new set of questions. So no need for a previously on. Let's just get into it. So anyway, I have now been pontificating for ages. I, sh I should probably ask you some more questions and let you speak. That's why you're here. Um, <laughs> ah, such a bad interview. It's awful. No, I like listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, you possibly do. But honestly, trust me, the regular listeners to this show have heard my voice enough. <laughs> um, so you've got three chapters of your current work done. Uh, three is in progress. Oh, three is in currently. progress. Yeah. Yes, so that's right. It's only chapters one or two that you've got done. Yes. Um, looking forward to those arriving. Really looking forward to sitting down and reading them properly. Thank you. So three is in progress. If you've got nine envisaged, there are there are six still to come. Yes. So asking you what's next is kind of a redundant question because clearly it's chapters four to nine. <laughs> Technically, yes. <laughs> but... I know enough creative people to know that in addition to the series you're currently working on, you've definitely got more ideas. 
So where do you see your career branching out to in a perfect world? Um, so uh, I'm, I have another thing coming out, I think, next year. I'm a part of the Cthulhu is Hard to Spell comic anthologies, uh-huh. and we have the third and final one coming out. Um, in a perfect world, I'd get to keep doing spooky Lovecraftian anthologies, but I think the guy is done running them, so not that. But in order to scratch that itch, I am very interested in doing black and white horror short stories mm-hmm. inspired by Junji Ito, who is one of my absolute favorite favorite creators of all time. Um, he does a lot of black and white short horror stories that are just absolutely mental. And I have this massive world that I've been developing for the majority of my life that Tempest Red takes place in. And it only really scratches the surface of the world being taking place in one country on one continent. So I thought that I would do horror short stories about the other places in the world that this takes place in because my gods are meant to be quite eldritch and maddening and i thought that would be fun to explore i like that i i I always like it when there's a wider world surrounding a story that i'm reading that i can occasionally dip into the sort of the, the bits that I'm unconnected to the story that I'm reading Mm. because that is how the real world is. Yeah. Really. And I'm always surprised how few successful series do that in any medium. Uh, I mean, Tolkien famously did that Mm. to some degree. Terry Pratchett did that. Outside of those two, um, I can think of what? Walking Dead has Fear the Walking Dead. Yeah. So what if there were zombies in L.A.? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I know some people in L.A. There actually might be. Um, <laughs> I mean, I can... I can I, if you discount the sort of concept of the Marvel and DC universes, which is sort of that... Yeah. Actual, actual independent comic series that do that, I can only think of one. Rodney Barnes's uh, Philadelphia has recently launched a spin-off which is set in um oh goodness sake baltimore so philadelphia is obviously is is a vampire story that happens in philadelphia you you see what they did there and it's really good (laughs) really really good actually uh but the the central character although he was born in philadelphia he'd been working as a cop in baltimore before his father died and he had to come back to philadelphia to deal with his father's estate and they've now launched a spin-off called uh, Nina Hall's Nightmare Blog, uh, which is basically centred on his ex-girlfriend still in Baltimore. So the two oh, nice. don't touch each other at all. He's doing his thing in Philly and she's doing her thing in Baltimore. There's just that just that brief link to get the spin-off started. Oh, nice. It's, it's, it's monstrous weirdness in, in Baltimore and has nothing to do with vampires in Philly at all, which I highly recommend it if you can find it. Uh, <laughs> Philadelphia, the the first two trades are out now. Philadelphia um, oh salesman again. <laughs> oh no, I'm I'm always interested in more stuff. Uh, it is honestly, genuinely, and I might even cut this bit out of the show so I'm not sounding like a complete salesperson. Yeah, 
Reggie from the future again. Fair to say, I was always going to leave that in because I am a horrible, horrible salesman. But it is my favourite vampire story of the last 20 years by far. Ooh. And bearing in mind the last 20 years, I think, contains Buffy and Angel. <gasps> I love Buffy and Angel. Um, as do I. As do I. And that's how that's how good Philadelphia is. I mean, it's a very oh, nice, different, very different time to Buffy and Angel. Obviously, it's a it's a much more hardcore, less fluffy and positive take than Buffy okay. and Angel. But it's it's Ooh, nice. It's it's really good. If you like horror, I think you'll really enjoy yes. it. So yeah, there you go. You see, come to do an interview, get recommendations. I, just I love, I'm so excited. <laughs> just can't stop myself. I only said this. We've now reached the point where I should have made the notes that I said I don't normally make because I know there were other things I wanted to talk about and I can't remember what they were. My mind's gone completely blank. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> it's because I switched into salesman mode. That's never a good, oh. never a good sign. Well, I benefit from that because I got Philadelphia. <laughs> so, okay, this bit's definitely getting cut out as I ramble incoherently while I try and get my thread <laughs> again. Uh, we've talked about thought, but we've talked about cons. We've talked about where your interesting comics came from. Uh, we've talked about your work. Uh, we haven't really talked about your style, but I'm getting the sense that you're not really comfortable going into um, styles and, and stuff. I just don't really know what to call it. I, the closest thing I've ever known to call it is um, semi-realism, because it has like a realistic type of render and proportions, but also it's a bit cartoonish proportions i don't know how to i just don't know how to describe it that's not helpful at all no but to a degree i mean having having said earlier that um you really need to be good at selling yourself yeah at the same time is it your job to describe your art to people i suppose really is it isn't it they are isn't it partly at least the job of the viewer of the art to make up their own minds about it so, so why should I be putting pressure on you to tell <laughs> to tell me what your art looks like? Um, well, it's behind me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd, have to, I'd agree with what you say. It's, it's, I would say it's not a cartoony style. Okay. But yes, I mean, you haven't. You're not Alex Ross. You haven't gone for photo realism. Um, <laughs> which, which honestly, I prefer. Um, mm. the, this isn't a popular opinion in some quarters. I don't think Alex Ross and that style, not just ragged on Alex Ross, but that style of a very realistic art, I don't think it works all that well in comics. Hello, yes, Reggie from the future again. Uh, just to point out that I recognise that this was two people who love comics talking to each other, and we both knew who Alex Ross is. You might not. So, um... There are links in the show notes to the work of Alex Ross. He is a fine, fine artist. And I just don't think his work works for comics panels. As I say, not a popular opinion. Most people love him. I'll let you make up your own mind. Just go to the show notes and take a look. It's great for covers. Yeah. If you wanted me to to, to, to name my favourite cover artist of the last thirty years, Alex Ross would be in the top five. But as interior comic art, 
to actually tell a story with, I think that realism is limiting. Yeah. Not least because I think, and yeah, here's a non-artist telling artists how things work. <laughs> My experience of it is that people who go for the real, really realistic styles tend to use a lot of photo reference. <laughs> the problem with photos is that they're static. Yeah. They don't move. And the art in a comics panel, for me at least, has to look like it's moving. So this this is not exactly radio gold because the listeners can't see this, but behind you, you have a background with fairies and other creatures on it. Of course, they're not moving. It's a painted comic panel, but they look as though they're frozen in the act of moving rather than they've posed for the picture. Thank you. And I really do think that's an important distinction. Somebody like Terry Moore, I don't know if you're familiar with Terry Moore's work, he's very good at this. Um, he has a beautifully clean black and white line art style, which is knocking on the door of being realistic most of the time. Mm-hmm. But he's not afraid to go for a kind of manga style caricature of an emotional expression, if mm. that's the way you get the meaning across. Yeah. And I think if you're telling stories with pictures, you need to be able to do that. You need to be able to convey that expression and that movement. And if you... Oh, I'm on my soapbox again. No! I'm so sorry. No, I agree. Like, sometimes being too wordy in a comic just isn't, you know, it isn't the right move. Sometimes you need the pictures to speak for the words. And getting things as expressive as possible without using words tends to rely on the images portraying these emotions to the fullest. And sometimes realism just doesn't quite get that. Uh, Yes. Thank you. Much more eloquently put than I just put it. Um, Yes, I agree. And also that sense of movement that you can have in a, and not photo realistic picture means you don't have to say that the character is reaching out for something because you can see that they are. Yeah. Now they don't just look like they've struck a pose. You can see that, Oh yes, that hand is definitely reaching towards that object. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that head is definitely turning in the process of turning to look at that thing that's happening over there. Yeah. And yeah, I think, I think my beef with the really realistic stuff is that you don't get that sense. And Honestly, if, you, if you're just going to make a, a comics page up out of static panels, you might as well do a photo strip. Yeah, I see that. It's, it's, it's quicker and easier and looks awful, but it looks just as good. <laughs> Sorry, I'm old, I'm old enough to remember when photo stories were, were like the, the most modern thing in comics. Oh, uh, wow. Back in, the, back in the early 80s, and they were all universally awful. Oh, no. <laughs> um, do... I encourage everyone to Google, um, if you Google photo stories in Jackie and photo stories in Eagle, and the the one I remember most from Eagle was called Sergeant Streetwise. And they were were comics, but instead of hiring an artist, if we're honest, basically the editorial team from the comic involved just went out with a camera and took pictures of themselves posed. 
as though they were having mm. conversations or doing stuff. And if they needed, if it needed to look like somebody being thrown through a window, they kind of pose in front of the window, like with their, ah, oh, kind of expression. Oh, wow. And then somebody, once the photograph had been developed, somebody often with what looked like a Sharpie would go in and draw in like crack lines. <gasps> oh, wow. I mean, I remember them fondly, but they really were so bad they're good kind of <laughs> quality stuff. There, there are some great examples to be found on the on through through Google just to just to marvel at it. Oh, I absolutely will. It's, uh, I mean, anybody who likes to make that kind of comic, because I'm sure there are people out there with their smartphones doing exactly that. I'm probably not talking about you. The filters and stuff that you can put on your spot, smartphone now will actually possibly make it even look good. So don't hate me. <laughs> but if you were doing them in the 80s, they look awful. Sorry. <laughs> so what would you say? Oh, you see, I, I, I nearly lost a thread again there, but pulling it, back by, pulling it back like a pro. What would you say your main influences have been? Um, what are the comics or the stories in general uh, that mm-hmm. you enjoy that, that maybe have some influence on your work? Most of the things that inspired me when I was younger uh, were manga, and I didn't actually get into indie comics until I started selling them myself. I think I grew up with Dragon Ball and Sailor Moon manga and uh-huh. would just eat those up. Not like literally, you don't eat paper, but just constantly consume them. And I think... Since I discovered other indie comics, I've been really into um, Rat Queens. I absolutely mm-hmm. love them so much. And Sky Doll. And, oh, Lord, I have a huge stack. I have a huge stack that I got at Thought Bubble that I need to consume as well. Um, but beyond manga inspirations, I was actually always very inspired by Final Fantasy stories. Um, I played a lot of games growing up and Amano's logos and concept art for Final Fantasy is what kind of got me into art in the first place. And then um, the Studio Ghibli films were all of inspiration. He's very expressive with the way that he uh, creates these animations and stories. And then Junji Ito, (laughs) once I got further into the comics world, um, so a lot of what inspired me to even make comics weren't necessarily comics. Um, they kind of created a love of storytelling in me that I just kind of put my hobby at drawing together with. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of coalesced into a comic creating mega blob yeah. <laughs> that is my life. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, because again, I think it's a, a mistake that a lot of aspiring creators make. That oh, I want to make comics, so I need to think about the comics that I like. Mm. I want to make a film, so I need to think about the films that I like. When actually, what you've just described is, I want to. I I have the impulse to make a creative thing. Yeah, absolutely. What are the other creative things that I enjoy? And, yeah, of course, you're going to draw influences from the storytelling in computer games. 
um, or movies or different styles of comic because mm. we are all how did you describe it a big blob <laughs> of, of our experiences that's that's what we yeah. are that's what makes us what we are <laughs> we we experience stuff and we process it in our heads alongside everything else that mm. we're processing inside our heads and if we do something creative it then kind of mixes up and comes out on the page as our thing yeah which is why all creative people produce different kinds of stuff you know i i don't think another creator could quite do what you do because they're not you yeah um just as you probably couldn't write in the way that i write you probably wouldn't want to but but you couldn't because you're not me and so your worldview is different and i think that's that's again something that's really important for creative people to remember when they're getting started. I, again, when I've when I've been doing sort of comics creating workshops at libraries and that kind of thing, which I do a bit, I've spoken to so many kids who are like, "Well, I like this particular artist, so I want to draw like that," and I like this particular character, so I want to tell stories about a character like that. Mm-hmm. And. I don't know. I just think that's really limiting. I think what it's much better to go, okay, I like this artist, but I can't possibly draw like that because I'm not him <laughs> or her. You know, even even stupid mechanical stuff like I'm left-handed and they're right-handed is oh. going to have a, an influence. So, of course, I, I'm i never going to draw like Jim Lee. It's never happened. Yeah. So it's foolish to try. It's much more sensible to embrace the whole of your creative influence and let that be you oh yeah um especially when gathering again i'm sorry sorry i've just realized i'm telling an artist (laughs) how to art again no no it's okay um I, i find that when gathering inspirations especially from like different media like like i'm inspired by all kinds of nonsense and try to channel that energy into comics even if it doesn't directly correlate Um, I like to try to deconstruct what exactly I find inspiring about the things that I like and then take the bare bones of that and then build off of it in comics. God, I can't even think of an example. (laughs) Like, I... What was it? I really like um, in Final Fantasy VII and IX how they have a certain magic system that surrounds different kinds of crystals and you can get certain techniques and skills from these crystals. And instead of just taking that the way that it is, I try to deconstruct what it is about that concept that I really like. And I like the idea of knowledge or different kinds of energies being stored inside other objects. So we can do something with knowledge being stored inside inanimate objects and then take that elsewhere. So it can be kind of difficult deconstructing interest, but if you are able to do it, it is very helpful and very inspirational. Yeah, and you know what? I think that's absolutely brilliant advice. Um, I, I hope that anybody out there who is thinking of making their own thing takes that to heart um, because... 
again, it's just that leap of imagination mm. to be able to mix the stuff up. Yeah. Um, it, I think it's not that a lot of people can't do it. I think it's a lot of people mm-hmm. don't think to do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so maybe having had that suggested to them now, mm-hmm. it'll open up uh, a sort of creative floodgate uh, in the minds of some people, at least. Yeah. I don't like to toot my own horn, but when I suggested that to my sister, who was toying with the idea of writing a children's book, she found it very inspirational and very helpful in writing her own stuff well absolutely yes i imagine so and as far as teaching your own horn goes <laughs> you kind of should because <laughs> you know you are in the business of selling comics now and um telling people that they're amazing is probably a good marketing strategy Ooh, <laughs> so scary um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you I, I suspect that if you go to more conventions and meet more people who do what you do, you will start to find it easier. Yeah. Um, I should probably just deconstruct what I find insi- inspiring about their sales techniques. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Woo! The best way to learn almost any skill like that is by observing somebody who's really good at it, do it. Mm. And then adapt what they what seems to work for them to something that you can do. Yeah, that is a good idea. <laughs> it's just so hard. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, equally remembering that, you know, you are you. And, yeah. you know, there are some people who you are never going to be like. I mean, as an example, um, sorry, Kev, if you're listening, but he's not. Um, <laughs> for the uh, thought, but one of the people I did meet at Thought Bubble this year for the first time in a long time uh, was an artist called Kev. Sutherland, who has done work for the Beano, he's done a little bit of work for Marvel. He actually does a. The reason I know him most is that when I was a teacher, he brought some of his comics workshops into the school where I was working. And he's very, I'm going to say, enthusiastic as a salesperson. You know, he was he he brought his first three of his own self-published graphic novels to Thought Bubble this year, and they're all based on Shakespeare. Oh, nice. Which is not always an easy sell. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Kev, as I say, Kev is a very enthusiastic person. Um, lots of people listening to this will know him and that will be nodding. Uh, and he was, he was kind of like, hello, welcome. How are you? I bet you're doing Shakespeare at school, aren't you? Of course you are. Do you have a favorite? Do you have one that you really like? Because this one's based on Hamlet and this one's based on Macbeth. Except it's better than that because it's a comic and it's not even pretending <laughs> to be Shakespeare. And and a lot of people find that approach off-putting. When Kev does it, it's charming. Um, <laughs> but not everyone can do that. Yeah. You know, not everybody has the kind of personality that can be that forceful. But equally, there are people who are genuinely quite shy and even a little bit awkward socially, you know, quite nervous of people's opinions and stuff uh who sit behind their desks and they're quite quiet but they're always quite smiley and positive Mm -hmm. and you know they're not big and loud and effusive but the advantage of that is that they tend not to attract the big and loud and effusive people 
Yeah. And the people who are not big and loud and effusive, who might themselves feel a little bit socially awkward, and let's be honest, many of us in comics are, they're not scared away. Yeah. By that quieter approach. And I think as long as you're as long as you're smiley and engaged and positive about what it is you've got, I think that works. And, you know, I can think of quite a lot of very successful um, comics creators who who very much take that quite gentle approach yeah. to their marketing. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you don't have to be big and loud. You do have to be very positive about what it is you've got. Nobody, yeah. Nobody's ever attracted by a pitch that goes along the lines of, I've made this. It took me ages. It's all right. Yeah. Um, I, I probably wouldn't be interested. So, but, you know, yeah. If you'd like to have a look, um, I really enjoyed making this is, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's a less showy but equally effective way to go, I think. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not a good artist. I am a good salesman. So any advice, I, I, I feel comfortable. I've embarrassed myself a couple of times by telling you all about art in this conversation. Um, no, I see. I think, I think that outside opinions and art are incredibly valuable because the things that we make, we want to be appreciated by people who aren't only our peers. So if you see something that you think looks wrong, it, especially if it's of a person, people know when art of people look wrong and like it, you get that with hands and with faces it's because we see them all the time so even if you can't describe what looks wrong about it you still know so your opinion is still valid you know what i mean like the snowballing off of that like I, it, you you even if you don't have a lot of skill in art you still know when something looks good you still when some you still know when something isn't appealing and that is still valuable information thank you of course i mean yes that said i i am a little bit aware that i am a middle-aged middle-class white dude and <laughs> therefore have a tendency to to go off on one a bit about my opinions um <laughs> and i i do try quite hard to catch myself and not go off on one quite so much you said at the start of this conversation that you like to listen Um, yes i do that's something i should do more (laughs) i mean part of the problem is that i i do this show on my own for quite a lot of the time and and so i've i have gotten into the habit of trying to fill 60 minutes with my voice and oh yeah turning turning that off is not as easy as i thought yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I make a lot of my comics on live stream on Twitch, so I tend to try to fill silences as well. Um, I mean, I don't have anybody speaking to me, but I have, you know, the chat mm-hmm. going and mm-hmm. trying to continuously speak to them. Um, but sometimes, you know, chat will get kind of quiet where everybody's taking their lunches or people are off doing their own tasks. So you tend to have to ramble a bit to yourself. So I, I understand the tendency. And that's, that's interesting because I hadn't even thought of Twitch. <laughs> uh, I'm 50 this week. So, you know, I'm, I'm very old. Uh, but <laughs> no, oh, Do you know how old the earth is? Oh, no, that depends who you ask. 
Oh, that's that's true. Th- Either way, you're you're not I'm, even close. I'm going with thirteen billion, but I, <laughs> yeah. I I'm inclined to agree with others, you. Others have different views, um, <laughs> but I mean, I I have a Twitch account. I've used oh, it nice. I've no, I've used it once, so I could watch Doctor Who <laughs> because that's the kind of geek I am. But do you? I mean, I I know a lot of people who are involved in various creative industries now are. Mm-hmm. using outlets like Twitch as a not just as a means of communication but actually as a means of generating income. Yeah. Uh, which blows my mind. And I mean aside from having sprinted past your stand a couple of times at Thought Bubble, my entire interaction with you has been over Twitter until this conversation. Yeah. So how how important do you find the various social media platforms in what you do. And yes, we are going to leave that question hanging there because it's always nice to end on a cliffhanger, don't you think? So you can hear the final part of that chat. I'm not, I, I, I can't call it an interview. That, that I'm not good enough at it to call it an interview. So the final part of that chat with Shannon... Uh, you can hear next week. But now, if you are listening to this when it first drops on a Thursday, then yesterday was New Comic Book Day, which means I have got some comics to talk about. And let me tell you, it has been a great week for comics this week. A couple of issued ones that are worthy of chat, but I have to talk about the DC annuals because there's a bunch of them out this week. And they're all brilliant. The best, though, is without question the Nightwing annual. Now, you know how I feel about Dick Grayson. I've talked about him a lot. He is one of my favourite characters in the whole of comics, let alone the DC Universe, let alone the Bat Family. He is right up there with Tim Drake uh, as Robin and Barbara Gordon as Batgirl. So, of course, I'm going to like the annual, but this is. A particularly great story. Uh, it's by Tom Taylor with uh, Kian Tormi, Daniel Hadar, uh, Raul Fernandez, uh, and uh, Rain Burrito, and John Callis, and on art. And I probably mispronounced every single one of those names. Apologies to all. Uh, and Wes Abbott on lettering. It's a story about Dick Grayson and Jason Todd. Their past and their present. If you are not clear on who these people are, Dick Grayson was the first Robin. He is the big brother to all of the rest of the Bat family. And when he got to his late teens, he didn't want to be Robin anymore. He had a bit of a falling out with Batman and he went off to join the Teen Titans and to be Nightwing, which he still is. And Nightwing is a brilliant, brilliant character. Dick Grayson was replaced as Robin by Jason Todd. Jason was a very different kind of kid. He was troubled. He'd been in the system. He was orphaned. And he was much more violent and much more cynical than Dick had ever been. Uh, Batman took it upon himself to try and calm him down. You know, the idea was, I think, that being Robin might be the making of him. 
But Jason was headstrong and not good at taking instruction. And he ended up putting himself in a position where he was murdered brutally by the Joker. He was beaten mostly to death with a crowbar and then blown up. The story where that happened was called A Death in the Family. Uh, the death happened because in a late 80s gimmick, DC Comics ran a phone vote to uh, let the readers decide whether Robin would live or die. I think possibly just because they'd read the story uh, A Death in the Family, which was the, the run-up to that, and which is a terrible, awful, really bad story. I think they voted to kill him just to put everybody out of their misery. As so often happens in comics, Jason didn't stay dead. How they brought him back is so ridiculous that I'm not even going to attempt to explain it. It had to do with an alternative reality Superboy punching a pan-dimensional prison cell wall. Yeah, it's that stupid. We, we don't talk about it. We just accept that he's back. And when he first came back, Jason was very angry because he could remember how he died. And he looked around and saw that the Joker was still breathing and wasn't quite sure why Batman allowed that set of circumstances to continue. So he took on the mantle of the Red Hood, which was the Joker's first secret identity. And he became a bit like a, a sort of Marvel's Punisher kind of figure. He was violent. He would kill criminals. And Batman kind of brought him back into the fold. But Jason is still the prodigal son. He's still, well, his little brother Damien refers to him as the crazy one. So he is definitely the black sheep of the family. And this story starts with Barbara Gordon, Oracle. She who sees pretty much anything that can be seen by a camera. Showing Dick footage of the Red Hood clearly the Red Hood, murdering a couple of people. Criminals, to be sure, except they're not. I'm not going to say what they are, but, you know, because that would be a spoiler. But it looks dead to rights. It looks as though, yeah, that was definitely him, definitely doing that. That's a problem. Got to bring him in. And this is the story of Dick dealing with that situation. I'm not going to say how, but also looking back on when Jason was still a kid and trying to find his feet as Robin and the help that Dick was able to give Jason settle into that role under the watchful eye of Alfred. And it's a story about brothers. They're not really brothers, they're adopted. But they're not even legally adopted, are they? No, because Bruce didn't adopt. No, Bruce didn't adopt Jason. So not legally brothers, but brothers, nevertheless. They've been through a lot together. They are definitely family. And they do have this big brother, little brother relationship. And it's a story about that and what brothers will do for each other and the trust that brothers have. It's a beautiful actually quite moving story and I I love any kind of story that 
shows the relationship between the siblings in the Bat family. Because over the years, these characters have been so well drawn that I really do feel like they're real people that I know. That may be sad, but it's true. And this is one of the best stories featuring the Red Hood that I have read for quite some time. So the Nightwing 2021 annual out this week uh, from DC Comics. It's uh, 4 in uh, real money. And I should just say that the, um, the American idea of an annual is just a thing like a regular American comic, but with more pages in it. And it only comes out once a year. It's not like our hardcover traditional British annuals. Uh, but, you know, don't let that put you off. It's awesome. Truly, truly awesome. Uh, and that's not the only awesome thing out this week. No, no. Um, also out this week, from Image Comics, King of Spies, uh, by Mark Miller and Matteo uh, Scalera. Uh, Miller is, uh, is on words and Scalera is on art. Uh, Colours by Giovanna Nero, letters by Clem Robbins. And it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. I haven't always been a fan of Mark Miller. Uh, I followed his work ooh, since the early 90s when he started working with Grant Morrison on uh, Swamp Thing. And Miller's gone on to do his own thing. He's the creator of Kick-Ass, if you saw that movie. Uh, it was a comic first, and the comic's better. Uh, he's the creator of Jupiter's Legacy. He's the creator of Kingsman. That's one of Miller's. Uh, and he's returning to that sort of Kingsman world with a much more serious book, King of Spies. What we've got here is um, Roland King, who is a crack British agent, very, very much in the James Bond model when he was younger. Back in the 90s, he was shooting up things in Nicaragua and generally going around being Her Majesty's secret warhead, very much like James Bond. But now it's now. And all of that was 30 years ago. And he's kind of semi-retired. He's not been a field operative for a very long time because he's too old and too slow. Keeps himself in shape. And he's been, you know, fronting some defence companies and introducing the right people to the other right people to get arms deals done and all of that stuff. And he looks back on his life and he's not happy with it. He comes to realise that he mistreated his wife horribly. He was never there for his kids. He's not been a good man. And then he discovers something that is seriously life-limiting. He realises that he doesn't have a lot of time left. And so he decides to do something to make it right. To put right all of the things that he did wrong, or as many of them as he can. And to leave the world a little bit of a better place than he found it having caused so much fear and pain while he was alive. He just wants to try and undo some of that, if he possibly, possibly can. And, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm getting older, but 
this kind of story appeals to me. It's still got all the action and the splodiness that you would expect from an action thriller, which this definitely is. But also, it's just that sense of looking back on your life and wishing you'd done some things differently that I think we all experience as we get older. Uh, unlike Roland King, I'm not about to start travelling the world writing wrongs. Um, but it's nice to be reminded that just because we did stuff in the past doesn't mean we have to stick with it. And when a story is as well told as this, and as I said, I'm not always a fan of what Miller does, but when he writes well, he writes brilliantly. And this is Miller absolutely at his best. Can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, it is... Out now, issue one, uh, on the rack, as we speak, uh, from Image, uh, it's 4.50 and it's worth every single penny of that. It's absolutely brilliant. And finally, for comics recommendations, uh, you may have noticed that I've not mentioned the new series of Doctor Who very much. Uh, that's because uh, I'm planning to have a sit down with, uh, with Hat and possibly Alice, if she has the time, uh, to have a proper chat about it. And therefore, I'm going to reserve my pontification. Probably wait until the last episode is over and done with, and then we'll sit down next week and do that. So we might have that chat ready for next week, next week's episode. We might not. Uh, but I want to talk about Doctor Who, and there is a new Doctor Who comic hitting the racks this week. Doctor Who Empire of the Wolf, celebrating 25 years of the eighth Doctor. That's Paul McGann. Um, I wasn't a big fan of Paul McGann's TV movie of Doctor Who. Uh, I think that movie demonstrates exactly why you should never let the Americans be in charge of Doctor Who. But as the Doctor, he was great. And he's done a lot of audio dramas and stuff as the Eighth Doctor since the uh, TV movie. And they've all been great. He is a great Doctor. And I wish we saw more of him. And now we can. Because in Empire of the Wolf, we have the Eighth Doctor and the Eleventh Doctor. And two different versions of Rose Tyler, all working together. I'm not going to spoil any more of the plot than that. It is brilliantly done. Uh, written by Jodie Hauser, who I think is an excellent writer of Doctor Who. I would love to see her working on the TV show, actually. Uh, nicely drawn by Roberta Ingranata. It's beautifully coloured. Uh, by Uruna K, and I'm going to get this wrong as well, Shadiwa, I think, is how you pronounce that, um, and lettered by our very own friend of the shop, Richard Starkings, for goodness sake. It looks beautiful. Um, the likenesses are not photo real, but they're close enough that we know who we're dealing with. They look like the people they're supposed to be, which is often a problem in comics based on TV and film. And it's a, just a nicely told story. The characters are beautifully drawn. They are the characters you remember. And uh, I, I say, can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, out now, it's from Titan Comics. And uh, an absolute bargain at 3.50. So check it out. And although I would normally stop at 3, there are reasons why I have to talk about Hawkeye Kate Bishop issue 1. Kate is my favourite character in the Marvel Comics universe. I think she is brilliant. Uh, she's by far the best version of Hawkeye. 
and she is by far the best Avenger. Now, I know, I know, I know. Other people may disagree with me. That's fine. They're allowed to be wrong. She is brilliant. I have enjoyed every single story that she has appeared in, and I think I've read all of them. So, you know, take that as you like. She had her own solo story a couple of years ago, uh, her own solo run, and then that sort of morphed into the West Coast Avengers, which was also brilliant, uh, featuring characters like America Chavez uh, and the other Hawkeye, Clint Barton, and Gwenpool, and, you know, it, it was it was fun. The Kate Bishop books are always fun, and this one uh, is no different. The most recent iterations of Kate Bishop prior to this have been written by the brilliant Kelly Thompson. Uh, now uh, we have a new creator creative team on the job. Um, Marike Nyekamp uh, on words, uh, Enid Balam and Oren Jr. on uh, art, uh, and uh, Brittany Peer doing the colours with uh, Joe Caramanga on letters. It's a beautiful looking book. Uh, Kate looks magnificent in this. It's a slightly scratchy style but it works and uh, here we have Kate deciding to leave LA she's been in Los Angeles for a while uh, that's where the previous solo run happened that's where the West Coast Avengers were clearly on the West Coast where else would they be and now it's time to move on for her a little bit and you know things are different in her relationship now and most of her friends are back in New York. And, you know, maybe it's time to move on. But to kind of ease herself into it, she decides she'll take a case in upstate New York. Kate's a private eye as well as an Avenger. She takes a, Kate, a, a case in upstate New York. Um, so she doesn't go back to New York directly. When she gets to the very posh exclusive resort, uh, that she's been asked to come and have a look at, she realises she's been tricked. And the client is not who she thought they were going to be. And I'm saying no more than that. It's a nicely crafted tale. Uh, Kate is well portrayed here. And uh, I'm absolutely loving it. The, the plot may not be the most original I've ever read, if it's going where I think it's going. I, of course, could be wrong about where it's going. But I'm enjoying the ride, man. I'm absolutely enjoying the ride. And honestly, if they'd stuffed up Kate Bishop, I would be a very cross person indeed. And they haven't. So I'm happy. So also recommended, obviously, uh, issue one out now from Marvel Comics. Another absolute bargain at 350 uh, On the rack as we speak. Check it out. And while we're talking about the intersection between TV and comics, as we were with Doctor Who, um, and Hawkeye and Kate Bishop, have you seen the Disney Plus show? Because if you haven't, you really should. I am not going to go into much detail about it now because I'm hoping to have a bit of a chat about it with uh, some of the other geeks. Might even be able to get Steve back for that one. But I do want to just say very quickly a couple of things. First of all, Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop. Possibly the most perfect casting I have ever seen. Just spot on. 
a, just applause to whoever the casting director was that got her to do it. She's amazing. First. Second, I've seen a lot of online comment saying that Matt Fraction, the writer who wrote the stories that a lot of this TV series is based on, should be getting more credit. And yeah, he probably should. Actually, probably should. But I'm a little bit disturbed at how many people are disregarding and not even mentioning David Ayer, the uh, art artist. And before anybody says anything, I've only ever seen it written down. His name is David, and then his last name is A-J-A. -A. Now, I don't know if that's Aja. I'm presuming it's Ayer or Ayer or something, but I don't know. So if I'm wrong, sue me. Actually, no, please don't sue me, but, you know, forgive me. Now, the reason I think he should be getting a lot more mention than he is, is the look of Matt Fraction's run as writer on Hawkeye was absolutely, obviously down to him as the artist. And the opening credit sequence of Hawkeye looks like it could have been drawn by him. It wasn't, but it could have been. It's exactly, exactly, precisely his style. And I am annoyed that he's not getting the credit that he's due. So, links in the show notes to uh, the opening credits of Hawkeye, if you don't have Disney Plus and haven't seen it, and some of David Ayer's work on Hawkeye, so that you can see what I'm talking about. They really have just completely lifted his art style. And I can't, I, I may have missed it, but I haven't seen his name in the credits anywhere. And that, my friends, is not on. Yeah, you knew we'd get to the boring preachy part eventually, didn't you? <sighs> so, anyway, that's that. And that's about it for this week. We are very, very close to the hour. Uh, just a quick mention of our friends at the Geek Bar. Last week, I was a little bit cryptic, told you to go down last weekend if you possibly could. Uh, that was because that was their last weekend, pretty much. Um, their landlord wants the, wants the building back, and there's not a lot they can do about that. They are looking for new premises, and they are still in business. Uh, you should still be able to find them, I think, on Deliveroo and uh, Just Eat for food delivery. And the D&D &D sessions and stuff are still continuing. They found a venue for that. The Geek Bar as a whole thing will be back. I have every faith in that. Uh, so uh, watch this space. I will keep you as up to date as I possibly can. Because the Geek Bar was one of our very favourite things in Harrogate. OK, that really is it. Just enough time to tell you that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media. It is engineered by me in beautiful sunny Harrogate. Uh, and we will be back next week with the final part of uh, my chat with the wonderful Shannon Kirkwood from Moonsquid and uh, possibly some stuff on Doctor Who. More news, more views and more of all of that stuff. No geek community notices this week, because again, nobody's told me about anything. If you want me to plug your geeky event, do please get in touch at info at destinationvenus.co.uk. www.destinationvenus.co.uk is the place to go for all the show notes and links and everything else that you might need, having listened to this show. We will see you next week, same time, same device, unless you choose to use a different device, that really is up to you. Until we do. Be kind to yourself, be kind to everybody else, until the next time we meet here to go geeking.